0: In way of introduction, I want to start things off this morning by making a confession. And admittedly, things are about to get a little weird. If you know me at all, you won't be surprised to hear that I am a deeply competitive person. I know, an Adams being competitive. (laughs) Crazy, right? I have a problem. I know you would never have guessed it but I'm competitive. Whether it's some type of hereditary disorder, part of my overt masculine identity, a psychological compensation that developed when I was small as a child, or simply just a bizarre quirk to my already terrible personality, I am very competitive and I hate to lose. As your pastor, I confess to you, and I'm being serious, I know this is not a good thing. I am so competitive that I quit playing golf for a decade the very moment my two younger brothers started hitting the ball farther than me. The competitive nature within is so extreme. As a youth, pa- as a youth passer, I had to stop playing dodgeball with middle schoolers or play volleyball with the high school youth group. Was tarnishing my Christian witness. This competitive compulsion within me is so extreme as a t-ball coach, my family has to give me an hour to decompress after a loss before even talking to me. A lot of awkward silent rides home. To this day, my wife is reluctant to be my partner in spades. And for the record, she cheats at skippo, so that street goes both ways. I am very aware. I am very aware that this aspect of my personality is very far from being Christ-like. Truth be told, and I'm not proud to admit this. And this is where things might get a little awkward. But my competitiveness carries over even to church life. Yes, I can say and do believe that the Lord adds to the church. But if I'm being honest with you this morning, he's not really doing it fast enough for my liking. Now, Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I'm discontent in any way with the amazing work that God is doing here at Calvary 3.16, for it is amazing It's just that in my competitive nature, I want Calvary 316 to be the biggest, baddest, largest church in our community. And I know that that's kind of twisted. Once again, I'm I'm telling you all of this to be openly transparent that your pastor has issues. (laughs) Yeah, amen. I've got problems. As I'm sure you're aware The struggle between my flesh and the Holy Spirit within, it's real, man. I I don't like this competitive proclivity. I, I know that it's not a healthy thing. I'm painfully aware that this area in my life is something that Jesus is actively working at transforming and changing me from. I also know between you and me, I got a long way to go. I mention this often, but my approach to our Bible studies on Sunday morning is rather simple. As I go through a text, I, I, it's my prayer that the text goes through me. Like, I'm not teaching you something that I'm not first experiencing. Like, I believe that God must teach me a truth in the week that I then turn around and share with you. I think it's powerful that way. Every Sunday, it's my desire to expound on the living word of God from the context the words first come alive to me. This morning, we're going to take probably more time examining a section of John 3 than the text warrants. But I want you to know that the reason for this boils down to the simple reality that this past week, man, I've been drop-kicked by Jesus. Like, as I've been going through this text, it's been one punch after another, the Lord working me over about my sin of competitiveness, allowing that to enter my ministry. Now, I do believe that there is a lot we can all gain from this passage of Scripture but I think it's helpful you know my context before we start. And it's my prayer that God speaks to you in such a real and tangible way that he's spoken to me this past week. John chapter 3, verse 22. We pick up there because we left off with verse 21 last Sunday. We read that after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. After the feast of Passover had come to a close, and it was time to to now leave Jerusalem, and this time in Jerusalem included Jesus' cleansing of the temple, his teaching of the people, performing signs and miracles, a profoundly fascinating conversation with Nicodemus we wrapped up last Sunday. We're told that Jesus and his disciples, likely including at this point Peter, Uh, Andrew, his brother, John, his brother, James, Nathaniel, and Philip, they come from Jerusalem into the land of Judea. As we'll soon see, it's likely they camped out in an area on the banks of the Jordan known as Enon. While While in the land of Judea, John tells us here that Jesus remained with them. I like that a lot. In the Greek, the word we have translated as remained, it literally means to rub between. The idea that John is articulating is that Jesus spent his time in this season literally rubbing shoulders with his disciples. Jesus, think about it, who's already in John's gospel been introduced to us as the word that became flesh, the God-man, the son of God, that Jesus, in that context, he came to earth, not just to save sinful man, but he came to earth to rub shoulders with sinful man. Jesus, friend, he's being presented here as very open and very relatable. Jesus wasn't detached from the multitudes. He cared deeply about people, flawed people, people he knew in advance would betray him and deny him and crucify him. You see, Jesus entered the human condition and willingly experienced human connections. Jesus took the time, and I love this, to develop meaningful friendships, relationships with the very people he came to save. Aside from this quality time that Jesus is sharing with these men, John also tells us that Jesus baptized. Did you notice that? Now, in a recap of this season in Judea, recorded in John 4, verse 2, the beginning of the next chapter, our author adds for us an important clarifying detail. He writes that Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. It would seem that during this season of ministry, Jesus was preaching a message very similar to John the baptizer, concerning the importance of repentance over sin and preparation for the Messiah and his work, but that Jesus was also facilitating, as part of this ministry, baptisms his disciples were specifically carrying forth. Well, verse 23, we're told that John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and testified to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Because this particular season, this particular section, of the Jordan River near Salim had an ample supply of of both water and, and just turf, space. The scene sets both John the baptizer and Jesus, along with their disciples, ministering on the same street block, reaching the same crowd. Now, what's fascinating about the way that John presents the subtext to the scene is that it would appear during this season that John's ministry was experiencing some unexpected setbacks. First, we're told that there arose a dispute, or literally a debate, a source of contention between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, in context, the Jews were likely a reference to the religious establishment that had come from Jerusalem, and this topic of purification probably centered upon the very idea of baptism, water baptism, being an effective and appropriate response to repentance. But secondly, and probably more importantly, we're also told that it was during this season that John's popularity was becoming dwarfed by Jesus. Though John, up until this point, had been the man. I mean, John the baptizer. He, he came onto the scene with a flash. Multitudes upon multitudes, massive crowds had been coming to John and his ministry. It had been powerful. It had been awesome. He'd been drawing the crowds. He was the hot ticket item. And really, aside from, from the challenge over purification, during this season now, with Jesus ministering in the same place, To the same people, John was losing his audience. His popularity was diminishing. And alarmed by these developments, John's disciples, they come to him and they declare, Rabbi, Jesus is baptizing and all are coming to him, implying they're no longer coming to us. And you know, I think in that moment, John, he probably smiled. Look at his reaction to the news. This great alarming concern that all were coming to Jesus. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has first been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And then John makes this incredible statement. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase. But I must decrease. Though it's true that Jesus was now drawing larger crowds than John the baptizer, (laughs) this new dynamic, it doesn't seem to bother John in the slightest. While his disciples are, are falling into the trap of this competitive spirit. Not so with John. In order to expand the perspective of his worried disciples, and the verses we just read, John lists five simple reasons that this dynamic wasn't bothersome to him at all. First, if you're a note taker, you can jot them down. First, John wasn't bothered by this dynamic because he knew all ministry was a gift from God. Look again at verse 27. John says to them, A man can receive nothing, unless it has been given to him from heaven. John rightly understood something that so many forget when it comes to ministry, and and really life in general. And that is the fact John knew that he wasn't owed anything. He wasn't owed anything. You see, John clearly recognized that his ministry of preparing the way for Jesus he writes, look at it, had been given to him. John's declining influence wasn't an affront to his pride or an attack on his sense of self-worth. Why? Because he knew the ministry he had, the ministry he enjoyed, was something that he hadn't earned, nor did he even deserve it. Like this wasn't something he had built from the ground up and therefore possessed or owned. John hadn't created the opportunity for himself. Instead, John understood that it was only by an act of God's grace that he had been included in the work at all. The opportunity that he enjoyed was something that he had been given from heaven. Something he had received. As such, John knew that he had no claim or right to argue if God decided to change the ministry itself. It wasn't his. Since God owned the work, the truth, God was free to do whatever he wanted to with it. You know, I have discovered that when you lose sight of the reality, the ministry opportunity right in front of you is a gift from God it is so easy to then get distracted and even worse, discouraged by the opportunities God hasn't given you or worse yet, those He's given to someone else. The simple fact remains that competitiveness quickly arises when we warp the origins and the ownership of the ministry we've been entrusted, the ministry we've been given. Please know, whether you serve by ushering or you come to church early to make coffee or to greet visitors, to serve in the nursery or teach kids or work with the youth, whether you come to church to serve by singing on the worship team or you volunteer in the media booth, you open the service with prayer, you pray with people during the service itself, or you're the one preaching a sermon. Whatever it happens to be that's your ministry, your service to the Lord, please understand and don't forget, whatever that is, it's an opportunity that God gave you. It's been given. Like, like always remember, because God's work isn't dependent on your involvement. <laughs> it really isn't if not for his amazing grace, you wouldn't be included in the work at all. Like you're only involved in the work of God for one reason. It's not because you're awesome. It's because he invited you to participate. And in most instances, in spite of you, not because of you, because he loves you. For in seeing the opportunities that God has given you with such a perspective, you know what it should do? It should spawn a continual and profound appreciation for them. Why? For they were given, given to you by God. You know, when I lose sight of the fact that this opportunity before me, the opportunity to teach God's Word at Calvary 3.16 every Sunday morning is a gift. That this opportunity is not something that I've earned, nor is it something that I deserve, but that the opportunity in front of me every Sunday is something He's just given to me by His grace. It's then so easy if I lose sight of those things to leave here after the service. Discouraged by the crowd that wasn't in attendance versus excited about those who were, or envious of the church I don't pastor versus proud of the one I do. Like it's so easy when you lose sight of these things, when I lose sight of them, to even despise what I've been given, especially when I begin to think or fall into the trap of believing I deserve something more. John the baptizer had no problem with a diminishing ministry because he was able to refuse the trap of competitiveness. For one reason, John had no false sense of entitlement. John knew God didn't owe him a thing. So what right did he have to make demands or even then to be disappointed? Like never forget, whatever opportunity is in front of you is a gift given to you by the Most High God. A gift given by His grace. Secondly, you're a note taker. John wasn't bothered by this dynamic, too, because he was sure in his calling. Look again at verse 28. John says to his disciples, you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. In John's situation, in the presence of Jesus' growing popularity and his waning notoriety, he wasn't alarmed, he wasn't discouraged by what was happening because he knew what? Jesus was the Christ, and more importantly, he wasn't. John knew God had called him to not be the Messiah, but to be the forerunner, the preparer, the herald. And in such a context, competition was silly. Like he knew his place, and he was 100% content with it. John knew he was fulfilling his heavenly calling. Please know, there are few things more freeing than being absolutely content with who you are and at peace with who you are not. Like It is absolutely liberating to know with confidence who God has called you to be and then to filter everything you do through that particular calling. It's freeing and it's liberating. Christian, in my experience, there is nothing, in contrast, more frustrating than finding yourself in a ministry dynamic where you're trying to be someone you're not. Or trying to fulfill a calling God never gave. Like, honestly, <laughs> it's not only unsustainable, but such a dynamic is incredibly taxing. Let me give you a few practical examples. I have a dear friend, a dear friend, who struggled as a worship leader, which was ironic because. He was a dynamic worship leader, a gifted worship leader. But he struggled with it because he felt his true calling was to be a senior pastor, to pastor a church. And because he was trying to be, this is an Andy, by the way. (laughs) Because he was trying to be someone he wasn't, I watched my friend struggle for two years. Not only was he he ineffective, but he was miserable. Trying to be someone he wasn't called to be until he finally quit or was fired or was sent out. It's all murky. But he set out to fulfill what God had called him to be. And today he is a, a fantastic senior pastor. He's still a great worship leader. But he's being who God made him to be. He's being who God called him to be. He's not trying to be something he isn't, but he's embraced. He's embraced that calling, that equipping. Like, like I know pastors who completely, they don't do it on purpose, but they completely neglect their congregation. Because if they were honest, they, they, they've actually been called to be a missionary. They're constantly on the road, constantly overseas, constantly doing this, doing that, to the neglect of the people in front of them. In my own life, here's another confession. For 10 years, while I absolutely loved and cherished every moment of being a youth pastor, I was probably, you know what? I'm just going to say I was. And we're well not even probably. The world's worst assistant pastor. Not only because the pastor was my father, but being a number 2 in that context, it wasn't my calling. And nor, nor was it my particular gifting. I was trying to be a square peg forcing myself into a round hole. And that never works. John here, John found himself at peace. He wasn't bothered by any of this, was he? He was at peace because he knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. And was therefore able to embrace his unique calling. (laughs) He couldn't compete with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the Christ and he wasn't. Jesus' ministry was different than John's ministry. And John was fine with it. He was able to resist the urge to be who he wasn't because he was confident in who God had made him to be and called him to be. You know, I know that I speak out against the seeker friendly church a lot. But there are times, here's a confession. There are times that I think to myself, we're not going to be able to compete with them if we don't tweak this or change that. Maybe we need a smoke machine coming out of the piano. You know, laser lights or something. And yet, here's the, here's the, here's the truth. I have to be who God has called me to be. And I have to fulfill the calling that God has given and fulfill the vision of what this church is called to be and trust that whatever results is in God's hands. I can't be seeker-friendly. You know why? I'm not friendly. It's a fundamental problem. Christian, if you hate babies, and you can admit it, it, they are little monsters. So selfish, like poop in the toilet. Come on. If you hate babies, but like you're a total geek for coffee, here's here's a suggestion. Don't serve in the nursery but instead volunteer in the hospitality center. Like if you don't like interacting with people and you prefer a screen, like don't try to be a greeter. And instead like work in the the team that serves in the media booth. like John, like know who you are. If you can't sing, Don't try out for the worship team. It'll be a disappointment all the way around. Like, know who you are. God made you that way. Exactly the way that you are. Know who you are, and don't try to be someone you're not. And in the process, embrace that calling. Third, note-taking. John wasn't bothered by this dynamic because... He never lost sight of his fundamental role. Look again at verse 29, because John makes a a profound point to his disciples using an apt illustration. This is what he says. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now, Now, don't miss that point. It's subtle, but significant. John exhibited great caution and how he reacted to the shifting dynamic. And he was able to resist the absolute folly of competition with Jesus. Why? Because he was able to keep the larger picture in mind. Like John was keenly aware of everyone's role. John knew that Jesus was what? Jesus was the bridegroom. And the Hebrew people, the object of his love was his bride. This picture. In this work that God had initiated, John knew that Jesus in that role possessed a special relationship with Israel that he had no business interfering with. It's why he's like, this is good. To his disciples, John describes himself, how? He describes himself and therefore his role as being, quote, the friend of the bridegroom. John knew that it was not his role to then be the center of attention, right? Man, I'm just the friend. There's the groom, there's the bride, I'm the buddy. I'm the friend. I'm just honored that I can be a spectator, right? Like I have no business being the center of attention. I'm just honored to be a friend who, quote, stands and hears the bridegroom speaking with the bride. John knew as such it would have been inappropriate and wrong for him to be involved any more than he already was. Jesus was to be the focal point John only existed to play a supporting role. He's part of the supporting cast, not a main character. Let me first speak to this point as a pastor. But then here's the deal. I want to apply this more universally. It applies to all of us. Speaking as a pastor, there is nothing more dangerous in the life of a minister than when he forgets he's simply the friend of the bridegroom. Beyond the reality, a pastor doesn't own the ministry because it's a gift that's been given, right? Jesus is presented in the scriptures as being the groom, and the church is whom? His bride, not mine. Sadly, pastors find themselves in grave trouble when they end up having an affair with the church. Instead of the focus of that man's attention being centered on his own family. The church consumes his time and his energy and his love and his passion. Not only does his cheating leave a wife at home feeling neglected. Do you know what happens? That man's kids will end up hating the church because she's the mistress. Now, I could go off on that point, but this really is the reason that so many pastor's kids end up rejecting church as soon as they're given the opportunity. And it's true, they do. Pastor's kids, are, are they have a bad reputation. They're wild. And they run from the church as soon as they can. But here's why. They hate the church because it took their dad away from the home and because it became a source of pain for their mother. That's why they hate it and I speak as a pastor's kid, I am so thankful that my dad never cheated on my mom with Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, that he kept all of of that in balance. You know, the other danger behind such a dynamic is that the other woman, you know, the pastor's having an affair with, isn't a single lady. She's married herself. Like, not only is this pastoring neglecting his own bride, but who is he hitting on? The bride of Christ. And like any husband, guess what? Jesus doesn't react very well to that. As the pastor of Calvary 316, I have to remember, and I have a group of men in my life to help me remember, that this church is not mine. Not mine. I don't possess it. But I also can never forget that I'm married to Jessica, not the church. Like Jesus is the groom who, pe- who possesses a special relationship with you, not me. Like John, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom entrusted with an important but limited role. Heaven forbid Jesus ever catches me flirting around with his wife. But as mentioned, there's a a, a much larger universal principle that applies to all of us. Christian, never forget that you also have God-given roles that you've been charged to fill. Like, like for example, if you are a husband, you know what your God-given cosmic role is? Like your role in the grand picture? It's to love your wife. Not as you would love her, but as Christ loves the church. That's your role. Like your role is not to be Jesus in her life, but to reflect Jesus in the way that you love her. That's your role. If you're a parent, your role as a mom or a dad in the life of your child is to illustrate for them the person of God. Your job is not to be God in the life of your child, but to demonstrate either God's feminine tenderness or his masculine strength, the El Shaddai, the strength and tenderness of God. Your child is to learn about God's love and experience God's grace through the interactions that they have with you. That's your role. As Christians, there should never be a competitiveness among us. Here's why. We all share the same responsibility. Like our role on this earth isn't to win or lose. It's to be salt and light. Like, our role until we're ultimately called home is to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. It's to be servants of the King, ambassadors of heaven. Friend, we aren't called to be Jesus. We couldn't be. But we are called to reflect his light into the darkness. Like, never forget how all of this stuff, this life, 70, 80 years, whatever you have, don't forget how it's evaluated in the end by God. One day you will stand and hear one of two things. You could hear, depart from me because I never knew you. That's a bad thing and and it gets worse from there. But speaking to Christians, what you want to hear, the greatest words you'll ever hear, is when you stand before the Lord, when Jesus looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Like, like, notice what Jesus says, but also what He doesn't. Like, since the ministry is not ours, you don't possess the ministry. You also realize the results aren't credited to you either. Like, we'll be judged on what our faithfulness with whatever He put in front of us, whatever He gave, not our accomplishments. Faithfulness, not accomplishments, totally different than the way that this world evalu- evaluates. You know, you go to your boss and your boss is like, hey, you've sold nothing this year. You're like, yeah, but I've been real faithful. I've been here every day, been making my calls, and no, oh, I hadn't hit the quotas, but you know, you're fired. But I've been faithful. Yeah, I don't care. You didn't sold anything. You did not justified being here. Results driven. Versus being faithful. Like God, heaven, evaluates totally different. That's why, that's why Jesus could say, you gained the whole world. But you lost your soul. You did so much. None of it lasts. Well done. Good and faithful. You, you were faithful. The work wasn't yours, I gave it to you. You were, faith, you were called to be faithful with the work. Whatever resulted, I don't care. Billy Graham would say often, you know, people would be like, hey, you know, you're leading all these people to Jesus as an evangelist. I'm sure there's a big old mansion in heaven. He would say something to the effect, I, I, I had a house there, but it's likely next to the mansion that little old lady no one knows about who's faithful on her knees every day praying for the saints. What the result is doesn't matter. It's the faithfulness in what he's given. John was absolutely fine with the diminishing ministry, all things considered, because he knew it was appropriate for the groom and his bride to be the center of attention. Like he knew he was a bystander. And as long as Jesus was the focal point, he was totally content with the role that he had been given. When you, It's about being a husband to your wife. It's about being a father or a mother to your child. It's about being a servant of Jesus. It's not about your job. It's not about your career path. It's not about any of that. None of that's going to matter. And the grand scheme of things, it's faithfulness. Four, if you're a note taker, John wasn't bothered by this dynamic because his joy was based in the right thing. Look, look again at verse 29. John continues by saying to his disciples, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, what does he do? He rejoices greatly. Because of the bridegroom's voice, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John's disciples were discouraged because they were losing the crowd to Jesus, but it was that very reality that filled John with so much joy. He was ecstatic at what was taking place. You see, John's joy was not deterred, but fulfilled because he knew his opportunities were a gift from God, He was content and at peace with his calling. He kept his heavenly role in perspective and he loved more than anything else to see Jesus exalted. One pastor I listened to commenting about John's reaction, he said, John lost his congregation to Jesus and he was happy about it. Speaking candidly, I struggle with depression related to the ministry. I'm not unique in that most pastors do. There's what's called the Monday blues in the ministry. The high of Sunday followed by the depressing realities of Monday. We get up for Sunday, and Monday comes around, and, and, and there is a struggle with that. Truth be told, pastoring, a church, and I don't care if it's a small church, medium-sized, or mega church. doesn't matter, but it can be an emotional roller coaster, and I'm just speaking honestly. A packed house, and you know what, man? I get in my truck and leave the parking lot and drive home feeling euphoric. I could have preached a dog of a sermon, but if the place was packed, man, I felt great. A light crowd, I get in my truck, drive down Carl Bethlehem Road, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing with my life? When tithing is up, we have a good month. Man, we're finally turning the corner. We're getting somewhere. When tithing dips, I start working on my resume. Week by week. Like there is no high. Like seeing someone finally make a decision to go all in following Jesus. But when you see a person you love leave the church, it's a, it's a gut punch. The wind sucked from the sails. And once again, in those moments, what happens? That competitive spirit starts to rise up. I start envying the success of the megachurch across town. Or I grow jealous of their new building project. I start thinking to myself and it starts ticking me off. Their parking lot is so big They have to get golf carts to get people into the building. Why can't I have a golf cart? What's up with that? Come on, Jesus. Discontentment, jealousy, quickly give way to animus. And you know what happens? You know the only thing that actually results from it? My joy is robbed. The joy that I should have driving home From being faithful is taken from me. And you know, it shouldn't be the case. Because my joy should be found in Jesus and the job that He's given me to do. This danger of competitiveness over such things, the perspective, you realize it's insane. I'm speaking to myself. This is one of those moments where. I'm working on my Bible study with a bloody nose because Jesus just popped me. You know why it's insane? Think about what John's disciples were upset about. They were actually discouraged. Why? They were all coming to Jesus. What? This would be the farthest thing from a, a, a reason to be discouraged, right? And I wrote this in my notes, but it's in that moment that I'm in tears. I, Dear Jesus, I repent of such a rotten attitude, and I take joy that there are people encountering you and our community and other churches not pastored by this moron. Finally, John wasn't bothered by this dynamic, and he refused to be competitive. Because he kept the main thing, the main thing. I think verse 30, John makes the most incredible statement to his disciples. He, he says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Now that we understand the practical nature of what John is, is saying in relation to the dynamic on the ground, his statement is theologically revolutionary. John wisely understood that these two ideas were completely tethered together. Jesus increasing and self decreasing. Totally connected, tethered. You see what John is saying is that one cannot happen with the other and vice versa. If Jesus increases, what will happen in your life? Self will decrease. But if self increases, what will naturally happen? Jesus will decrease. But Paul talks about this in a different way. He says, I walk in the Spirit. If I walk in the Spirit, what happens? The flesh is kept at bay. If I flesh out, what happens? The, the Spirit's influence in my life gets minimized. Boom, boom. They're totally tethered, one with the other. Because John rightly grasped this grand spiritual reality, he declares, I must decrease. Why? Why? Because if I don't, Jesus can't increase. And I need Jesus to increase, so I must do this. The, the word must, it's more than just emphatic. It communicates an absolute essential necessity. Like in many ways what John is, is presenting here, it, it's so applicational because it's, it's a formula, right? If Jesus's fill in the blank increases, self's fill in the blank decreases, right? I'll give you just a couple of examples. If Jesus's authority over your life increases, your authority over your life does what? Naturally, automatically, decreases. If Jesus's influence in your marriage increases, your influence in your marriage decreases. They go together. One determines the other. Now, by all means... You can play around with this formula on your own, but keep in mind the the, the fundamental question that this verse presents to us. Does whatever it is, whatever situation you're facing, whatever it happens to be, struggles at work, issues with kids, marital issues, a grumpy neighbor you're, you're dealing with. I don't care. Whatever it is, whatever that situation is, ask yourself this question. Does that situation need more of Jesus or you? The answer is you're often the problem. At least you're never the solution. And the world needs more of Jesus. You can't go wrong with more of Jesus. See, John recognized that for Jesus to increase in popularity, it was essential, his popularity decrease. John realized his presence, it was actually more of a deterrent than anything else. Once again, this directly ties into the underlying issue of competition. It's hard to be competitive with another human being when you realize that no human being matters, but Jesus. This is John's core exhortation to his disciples here. Like their struggle centered upon a failure to keep the main thing, the main thing. They're all coming to Jesus. Why, why does that bother you? Because, because oh, you, you, you make a point. That's kind of what's supposed to be happening, right? You're the forerunner, he's the Messiah. Okay, the main thing, right? Jesus exalted, Jesus glorified. In the presence of a group of disciples struggling with the trappings of competitiveness, John exhorted them to remember, right? Five things. All ministry opportunities are a gift from God. You're entitled to nothing. So don't act like it. Two, he encouraged them to be, to be content, to be at peace with who they were, not be worried about who they weren't, to embrace their calling. Three, he reminded them of their heavenly role. He's the groom. That's the bride. We're just a friend. I have a role. It's about being faithful with that role. Four, he stressed the importance of seeing Jesus exalted as the basis for joy. And then finally, he relayed the need to keep the main thing, the main thing. The truth is that as your pastor in light, and in light of my sin, of falling into the trappings of, of possessing the same competitive spirit. This is what I can say, probably no truer words have ever come from this pulpit. Here you go. What our church needs, what our community needs, what my wife needs, what my children need is a whole lot less of Zach Adams and a whole lot more of Jesus Christ. And I'm saying that from my context, but I hope, I hope that says something to you. No matter what you're dealing with, and we all are dealing with different things, The world needs less of you and way more of Jesus. Competitiveness, it's fundamentally based in flesh and pride and ego. (laughs) It centers really on the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And you know the only remedy is that I must knowing this. And it's a promise that if I do that, Jesus is going to increase. As we close, if, if, if any of these truths...